0: So James writes to people who are struggling. Now, when you read the book of Acts, do you remember when, when Stephen is stoned in chapter seven? An amazing thing, the apostle Paul, who at the time is called Saul, is watching Stephen get stoned. And while he doesn't throw any rocks, he's holding everybody's coat. He sees Stephen get stoned, and that so inspires him to go kill Christians and to go torment them, that this great persecution breaks out against the church. And this is the period of time when the book of James is written. So James is written somewhere between Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 15. So sometime in that section, Paul starts persecuting these Jewish Christians, and um, the Bible tells us that they spread out. They were running away from persecution, so they were dispersed. And so if we look at James chapter one verse one, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So they're dispersed because they're fleeing persecution. And so they're struggling from without, but we also realize that they are struggling from within. And a lot of times those difficulties on the outside, they make it into internal struggles and so People in the Jewish church, in this church that that James writes to, they're having a difficult time, but the church as a whole is also struggling with persecution and within the church. Amazing how that ends up happening. And so James writes and he teaches what Jesus had to say. He teaches and, and encourages them to practically apply the things that Jesus has said. Let's talk for a minute about James. And who he was. So James was the brother of Jesus. How many of you knew that Jesus grew up in a house with at least seven people? So he was one of seven kids. How many of you guys knew that? And so when you read through the New Testament, it actually explains that. But a lot of people miss the fact that Jesus grew up in a family with brothers and sisters. And it's important. Matthew 1.25 it says, when talking about Joseph, it says that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until Jesus was born. But after Jesus was born, they had a normal marriage. It, it would have been a sinful marriage for them to not have, um, for for them to, for her to stay a virgin perpetually. That would have been sinful. And Jesus didn't grow up in a home with a sinful mom and dad. And so he kept her a virgin until, and in Mark chapter 6, verse 2, it actually lists Jesus' brothers. Here's how we know that there's at least seven and maybe more. So on the Sabbath, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, and they were saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And here's why this was so confusing for them. Then they say, hey, we knew this guy. And this is what they say in Mark chapter two, verse three. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, the brother of Joseph, and Judas, and Simeon? So there's four brothers that Jesus grew up with. James is the first mention. He's the oldest brother. And then it goes on and it says, and are not his sisters with us? So he has at least two sisters. And so Jesus grows up in th- this house. And so James, the writer of this book, is the second, is the firstborn son after Jesus. Now we know that as Jesus was growing up, if you look at Luke chapter 2, Jesus grows up and, and he goes to Jerusalem with his parents and it, it talks about how Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And you remember this perfect child who never did anything wrong. Mary and Joseph get mad at him in that trip because they head back home. And he's still in the temple talking to the religious leaders. And they're impressed with Jesus. And they come back and they say, Jesus, Jesus. Why have you treated us this way? Because they leave, then they realize he's not with them. They have to go all the way back. And so even perfect kids get in trouble. And so his parents get mad at him. But there is no mention of Joseph from that time. So sometime between uh, when Jesus was 12 years old and when Jesus starts his ministry, sometime in there, Joseph dies. And so Jesus is the carpenter. It's interesting they're saying he's the carpenter. So he takes on the family business. He probably trained James to do carpentry as well as the rest of the family. So Jesus was the leader in that family after his dad dies. He's training his brothers to do their career. And probably as he's studying scripture and learning, I'm guessing that he's teaching that to his younger brothers and sisters. So one of the things that we find out is that his family does not believe in him. His brothers and sisters grow up with Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. And so James spends his life living with his big brother, Jesus, but doesn't accept who he is. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus is teaching, and there's big crowds, and he's been doing all these things. And as his family members see this crowd following Jesus... They all get together and they say, we gotta go get Jesus, he's crazy. He's probably talking about how he's God again. <laughs> and so they actually show up and they, it says in Mark chapter three, verse 21, that they thought Jesus was out of his mind. So they, his family members don't, are not seeing him for who he is, his brothers and sisters. In John chapter seven, verse five, there's a story about how his brothers are mocking him actually. And they're saying, hey, you're doing all these miracles and all these things, go off to the feast because if anybody wants to be believed in, uh, they, they they don't hide, they just do things in public. So go do your stuff, Jesus. And when you read that story, you might think that they had put their faith in him or that they knew who he was, except you realize that they're mocking him because at the end it says, even his brothers were not believing in him. So how do you get from the place that you think your brother's crazy to you're mocking him and then you actually are a leader in the church and you write the book of James? So how does that happen? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's talking about after Jesus' resurrection and it's listing off, Paul's listing off who Jesus appears to. And he says that he appeared to Peter and the 12 apostles And more than 500 people at one time. And it specifically mentions, and he appeared to James. And then Paul says, and then he appeared to me. So you have the apostle Paul who's going around, tormenting, torturing the church. And on his way to Damascus, Jesus appears to him. And and Paul puts his faith in Christ. Well, here you have James, the brother of Jesus, didn't believe in him. And, J- and Jesus, after he's resurrected, appears to James. And I'll bet that was the same transforming event that happened in Paul's life. And James comes to know who Jesus is. By, James, by Acts chapter 15, James is very prominent in the church. So they have this debate about how do we, what do we do with Judaism and all these laws and how do we apply that now that we're Christians and it says in Acts chapter 15, it says that Peter talks and then they have this big discussion and then Paul talks and then Barnabas talks and when all this discussion's been had, then James speaks and James renders a judgment. So it's like you, you get the fact that everybody else is talking, Peter, Paul, and when James speaks, that settles the issue. Have you ever thought about why that might be? I was just thinking about this. You know, the disciples spent three and a half years with Jesus, right? Being trained and being taught. James spent his entire life living with Jesus. I was thinking about when you read the book of James, one of the things that you notice is James is preaching the practical application of the Sermon on the Mount. Like I said that in the video. But I was thinking about probably as Jesus was traveling around and preaching, I don't think James was probably there. And the Gospels, by the time James writes, the Gospels haven't been written yet. So, I mean, certainly he could have heard about this teaching from the other disciples. But I'm guessing... That as James was growing up and as Jesus was teaching him how to do car- carpentry and teaching him how to do things in life, I'm guessing that he was also teaching his family members and his brothers what God said in the Old Testament, how to obey, how to live as a believer. And so James was probably discipled by Jesus in his whole life. And so it's no wonder that when you get all the disciples together and you get everybody together that they're trying to figure out what to do, and they're probably like, well, we got three and a half years of training. James, you grew up with Jesus. How do we deal with this? And so that's why I think James was such a prominent leader in the New Testament church. Now, this is an amazing thing as you look at the opening verses of James. If you were Jesus' brother, you'd think that Jesus might introduce, or James might introduce himself as the brother of Jesus. But you see the humility, the transformation that happened in James' life after he came to know Jesus, and probably all these things that he was learning that never took root in his life, the moment he became a Christian, all of those things flood back into his life and he starts learning. I think for myself, I memorized so many verses as a kid growing up. And they didn't make it into my life. But after I became a Christian, God brought all those things to bear in my life. And I'm sure that that's how it was for James. But when you look at this opening verse of James, it says this. James one, James, a servant of God. And of Jesus Christ. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James talks to him about himself as a servant and that's actually the word for slave see there's the word for servant which is deacon and then there's the word for slave which is doulos and that's what he uses there and so james doesn't even say oh yeah i'm james uh jesus was my big brother he introduces himself as james the slave of god and of the lord jesus christ now, Jesus has another brother who writes a book in the Bible. Did you guys know that? got two brothers that write books of the Bible. The other brother is Jude. It's interesting that Jude does the same thing when he introduces himself. Jude 1-1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. But these people, they look at these, these brothers, they look at Jesus as their Lord not as their brother. And, and they don't take that claim to fame. So you see that humility. Tradition tells us that James was martyred as an old man. Uh, tradition says, and this is just history, so we don't know if it's true, it's not in the Bible, but the historical account is that James was 94 years old and the Jews gathered around and they beat him and then they stoned him. And then they took a a club and broke his head open. So that's the history of what happened with James. So there's three things that we're gonna see in the book of James, and that's just a little background for this book. But James knew Jesus, and he sees the church, and he sees them struggling, and he writes to say, here's how you live out your Christian faith. And so he encourages them. And the first thing that we see is that Christian love Christian love for God results in obedience. We obey. And that's actually one of the things that is very uh, controversial for some about the book of James. And <laughs> am I going to have trouble again? What do I do here? <laughs> it's not working for you either? Okay. Well, hey. Okay, there we go. Let's, let's see if I can change. The, oh, we got it. Excellent. So think about the Great Commission. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. So he's telling his disciples, when he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that's salvation, to baptize a person after they become a believer, and then teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. And so as Christians, and our job as the church, isn't just to teach people what Jesus says, but it's to teach people to obey what Jesus says. Jesus says this, um, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do I need to prove biblically this morning that Christians love Jesus? Okay, we're just gonna assume that and just say if you're a Christian, then it is natural for you to obey Jesus. You'll want to. Not only that, but 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments... And that his commandments are not burdensome. That we're just, we live life and we just say, Jesus, tell me what to do, I'll do it. We read the Bible. When you go to church and somebody's preaching and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm not thinking right. Isn't that encouraging? Man, I love that. When I go and hear that I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing, that's, those are my favorite sermons where I'm, okay, this is what I need dif- to do differently. Okay, this, it's because that flows out of a Christian's heart. We want to obey God and James is talking about that however we do we do struggle sometimes don't we so as you look at the book of James there's two things that I think go back and forth and in a sense the 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 individual on the video was saying that there's no real theme but as I look at it it seems to go back and forth between obedience and seeing people as made in God's image and if people are made in God's image how do we treat them? And the book of James just seems to go back and forth between those two ideas. And so that's why those are our first two points this morning. So let's just consider this whole idea of obedience, Christians obey. And th- we see that in, in several ways in the book, and I just listed a few of them. We're only gonna look at uh, the, second, the, the one that's highlighted there. But Christians are joyful in trials. Why? because we want to obey God and we realize that the difficulties and struggles that we face help us to grow in our character. They help us to live out a love for God and we're willing to suffer if it makes us more like Jesus because that's what we really want. So Christians obey, it it impacts how we view trials. James chapter one, verse 19 to 25, in that whole section is talking about God's word, but it just says we are doers and not just people who hear. And then James 2, 14 through 26, which we're going to read, talks about faith and works, and there's this challenging verse in that section that creates some controversy, which we'll look at. And chapter 4, verse 17 says, if you know the right thing to do, see Christianity is not just about what you do, Sometimes it's about what you don't do. And if you know the right thing and you don't do the right thing, that is sin. So sin isn't just doing the wrong thing. Sometimes sin is not doing the right thing. So you just see that all throughout the book of James. Let's look at James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. So I think that as we think about Christianity, There's a passage in Matthew seven, which is a really scary passage. And Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and do miracles in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Isn't that a scary thought? To be a religious person, to leave this world, to stand before God, and to have Jesus say I never knew you depart from me. Man, those are that's terrifying. 2 Corinthians 13 says, "Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith and you are in the faith unless you fail the test." So, a lot of people in Christianity, they want to judge everybody else, but I think as we look through scripture our call really is to evaluate ourselves. Do I really know the Lord? And what we're gonna see in James chapter two is part of how you can tell if you know the Lord is that you love Jesus, that you want to obey him, and that his, his commands are not burdensome. I think about in Christ you're a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come. So what is that? That's a new heart that shows itself in a new way of living so let's look at James chapter 2 I'll point out what's challenging and confusing but look at this James chapter 2 verse 14 what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him and I'm going to answer it for you the answer to that is no If you say you have faith, but you have no works, can that faith save you? No. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So that is a key phrase here. I will show you my faith by my works. And so true faith has as its result works. And that's the difference between people who teach that you can earn your salvation somehow. You can, you can gain more favor by, f- with God by doing good things. And, and there are some, some religious beliefs that say you earn your way to salvation. You earn your way into heaven. And one of the things we know is Jesus accomplished everything needed for our salvation. There is nothing left for us to do. And the harder we work and the more we try does not bring us closer to God. Jesus saves us and we are saved through faith. That's believing and trusting what Jesus did. But if you have faith, that will result in your life, the way you live, the things that you do. And so works are not a cause of salvation. Christian works are a result of, of faith, two very different things. And so it goes on here, and it says, and this is this is a great illustration that Jesus or that James uses in James chapter uh, one verse nine, or two verse nineteen. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What is James saying there? The demons have actions that result from their belief. They believe in Jesus and they shudder. So even demons live out to some degree this, what they know about Jesus. Do you want to be shown, verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And then look at verse 22. This helps us understand that because Paul says that Abraham was justified by belief, not works. And so then James says this, and people say, Oh, there's this conflict between Paul and James. And I'm just telling you, there's not. Verse 22 you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So what he's saying is that the works show the reality of the faith. Now, the apostle Paul in Romans where he preaches that we're not saved by works In Romans chapter chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that the gospel has come. This is verse 5 of Romans 1. It says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And then he talks about in Romans 8, 29, when he talks about God choosing us, he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. We were saved to be like Jesus. And then he wraps up Romans in 16 verse um, 26 and again he says that this gospel has come to bring about the obedience of faith. And so faith impacts the way that we live. What is in your heart, we're gonna find out, comes out of your words and it comes out in your actions. And so that's the transformation that happens. That's what James is saying is he's just saying, if you love Jesus, you're going to obey him. Now, I do want to encourage you. Some people could think, oh, man, I struggle with sin. Sometimes it's hard, and I feel myself pulled into it. That is a part of the Christian life. Um, Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 14 and on, he talks about how I do the very thing I hate. And the thing that I really want to do, I don't do. So Christians still <laughs> struggle with sin. But that's the thing that's different. When, when a Christian is struggling with sin, he hates it. When a non-Christian is struggling with sin, they like it. They enjoy it. Like that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Is believers hate it when they do things that are wrong. If you could close your eyes... And have anything you wanted. If nobody would ever find out. And there would be no consequences. What would you want? What's the desire in your heart? Like think about the riots. The moment people find out the police are not coming. What happens? They, they go steal moving trucks. Pull up to electronic stores. And go steal everything in it. Um, people just start. Violently attacking other people. Like, what holds society together? It's authority, it's consequences, it's punishment. So, if there were no consequences, if you were not going to get in trouble for anything you did, if you could just have whatever you wanted, what would you want? I know for me, I wouldn't want to sin. I would want to please God. I would want to always do the right thing. That is the deepest desire of my heart. And that's what James is talking about is that when you are a believer, you have a desire to do what God wants. And that desire does not show up perfectly in our life, but it shows up. Think about King David, right? Um, Psalms tells us what was going on in his heart during that whole sin with Bathsheba it says that his body was wasting away god's hand was heavy upon him and then nathan shows up to confront him and he says david you're the man and when david does that or when when nathan does that it's just this freedom for david finally he quits hiding and he's just thankful and he repents And that's what the Christian life is like. We have a desire to do the right thing. And sometimes when we're trapped in sin and we're keeping it a secret and then we get caught, that's our freedom and we love that and we're thankful that God brought it to light, that he brought people into our life to help us with things. That's the Christian life. Christians obey. We're not perfect, but we obey. So here's here's an encouragement for you. As we think about this, we should think about it mostly for ourselves. Am I obeying what is in my heart? What's working out in me? There are times that we can look at other people and we can say, I don't see a changed life. But we have no idea what's going on in their heart. A a changed life displays itself differently for different people. Sometimes you can't see what God's doing. And for my kids growing up, Um, I would always encourage them to evaluate themselves. Like I was there when my kids prayed to receive Christ or I was there shortly after. But one of the things I never did is I never went to my kids and said, I remember when you prayed that prayer, you're a Christian. And I also never went to my kids and said, you're struggling with sin. You're not a Christian. But I have gone to my kids and said, okay, can you explain this to me? If you're a Christian, how does this behavior, like what does that mean? And I remember one, one time, one of my boys <laughs> just said, well, John, <laughs> John says, I hate Jackson. And John was about 10, Jackson was eight. And I just got to say, I could relate to how John was feeling. Jackson was at that time very, very aggravating <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so I just said to John, I said, John, First John says that if you don't love your brother who you have seen, how can you love God who you haven't seen? And I said, John, are you a Christian? Yes. Do you hate Jackson? Yes. <laughs> and I said, you got to read that verse, and you need to think about that because those things actually don't go together. I mean, if you're a Christian, Christians don't hate their brothers. And that's talking about your brother in Christ But this is your physical brother, and it's your brother in Christ as well, but it's also your physical brother. So, John, you got to think that through. And so John thought about it for days and came back, and he says, I've really been praying about this and thinking about this, and I don't hate Jackson. But, you know, I always say anytime my kids have struggled with sin, I've always just encouraged them. So what does the Bible say and do you, do you hate it? Do you have an attitude of repentance? What does this say about where you are before the Lord? And that's something I prayed about for my kids. So love results in obedience. There's another thing. Christian love results in viewing other people as made in God's image. And you see that throughout the book of James. Um, seeing people as made in God's image. And some, all, some ways that that's uh, expressed is ignoring people's physical needs, seeing widows and orphans in their distress and just ignoring that. Valuing people based on what they have. Rich people get a good seat and poor people go stand in the back. So valuing people on that. James 3.1, um, remember when Jesus says, Anybody who misleads one of these little ones of mine, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around his neck and thrown into the deepest deep sea. And then James says in James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers knowing that in doing that you will receive a stricter judgment. So you're judged more strictly because the more you know, the more you're accountable for. But what you teach people and the way that impacts their life You are responsible for that. And you see also um, in this putting yourself first over other people, um, James 4, 1 and 2, is just you bite and you devour and you're fighting because you can't get what you want and you murder. You're willing to do anything to get what you want. And then verse uh, 6 and 7, it's just satanic pride and the way that Satan uses that to manipulate people. So faith is, and viewing other people as made in God's image. You know, that's the reason that we have the death penalty for murder, is because people are made in God's image. It's like if you hated somebody, you would throw darts at their picture, right? Or you might get a picture of them and tear it up. And when you kill a person, you are, you are attacking God himself, because people are made in God's image. That's why in Genesis 9-6 it says that if you kill a man that your blood should be shed because men are made in God's image. And so people, we love people and we treat people with the same reverence that we have for God because people are a reflection of God. You know, I think about just how that ought to impact us. Jesus says in Matthew 25, he's talking about a judgment And he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And they say, Jesus, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? And he says, in that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So Jesus takes personally how we treat other people. And James talks specifically about our words what we say about other people and how that should impact that. This is very convicting. Okay, so James chapter 126 says this. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not control his tongue but deceives his own heart, if you're not guarding your tongue, you're deceiving yourself about what? You're standing before God. If anyone thinks he's religious, does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. What we say about people, how we talk about people is so important. James chapter 3, verse 2, I'm encouraged by this passage, by the way. High standard for what we say. Any of you guys ever blow it in what you say about people? What you say to people? Well, I'm glad what James says here. He says this, James 3, 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. So James talks about how powerful the tongue is and how it is so hard to control. But as believers, we need to think about how we talk about people, the kinds of things that we say about people because people are made in God's image. Think about this. What you say about other people, God takes personally. Man, that's a shuddering thought. He says in verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they'll obey us, we guide their whole body through their tongue. Also ships, he uses the the rudder illustration. He uses the tongue as an illustration of a spark that starts a whole forest fire. And then he says, every beast of the field has been tamed, verse 8, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God from the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers. these things ought not to be so so as I think about my tongue uh, I want to be a person that builds people up I want to be somebody that encourages other people uh, I want to be the kind of person that talks to people instead of talking about people Have you ever thought about um, if you get into a group and you talk about people, when you talk about other people, do people leave that group with a higher view of who you were talking about? Or do they leave that group with a lower view of the people that you were talking about? See, sometimes I, I know that, like there have been times that I've heard people talking negatively about somebody and they'll point out some of their flaws that I actually never noticed. But then I'm like, you know that's true, they do that, and I start noticing it all the time, and, and I've just thought, you know, while I've done that, while that's happened with me, I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to be the kind of person that's building other people up, that's saying things that are in, an encouragement about them, instead of pointing out people's flaws, to point out what they do well. Growing up, this was a huge struggle for me. We always criticized everybody. We always cut everybody down. Like high school and junior high for me, it was like who can tear somebody down the best? And I just decided as a believer, I need to change that habit. And so we need to tell the truth about people. And I was thinking about, Michelle and I were talking about this friend that we had. And every time I was around that person, I felt so encouraged and I felt so built up. And I just took a step back and I thought, why? Why? I want to be like that person. And I thought about the way that they were always encouraging. They always pointed out things about me that, that, that they liked, that they appreciated. And I just thought, you know, I want to verbalize that. And So I started then trying to create a habit where I never say things about people that aren't true. <laughs> like if you think somebody has ugly shoes, oh, those are nice shoes. Or if somebody gets a, a haircut that just looks terrible, oh, I like your haircut, when you really don't. But to be able to sit back and say, maybe, maybe I don't like their shoes or maybe I don't like their haircut, but you know what? I really do like this about them. And so say that. And if you're in a group of other people, say things that are positive about other people. Build people up. And if somebody has a problem, go talk to them about it if they need it. Don't talk about them, but talk to them. Make sure that you're never pointing out the flaws of others. So we need to be people that have a A tongue that does not harm people. So here's how you deal with that. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, how can you speak good when you are evil? He's talking to the Pharisees. And he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. The reason our tongue is so hard to deal with is our tongue is a reflection of our heart. So if you think judgmental, prideful thoughts toward people, you will say judgmental, prideful things about people. So if you want to deal with your tongue, you've got to deal with what's in your heart. You can't just try to discipline yourself. You have to try to allow your heart to be changed. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as this fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Okay, we're gonna go quickly here. The third one is this. Christian love prays. We need to be people who are praying, and James starts with prayer. In the middle, it talks about prayer, and at the end, it talks about prayer. And so we're gonna consider prayer briefly so the beginning is praying for wisdom and just saying if you believe God and ask for wisdom to get you through your trials, God's gonna grant that wisdom. And then in chapter four, he says if you don't you don't have because you don't ask. Now this is an interesting thing. That's a passage about attacking people and fighting with people because you're not getting what you want. And it reminds me of the sin of David and Bathsheba where after David steals Uriah's wife and then after he kills him, when, when God comes and when Nathan's confronting him, he says to David, David, if you would have just asked, wouldn't I have given you everything? Wouldn't I have given you whatever you asked for? But instead, you went and killed somebody and you went and took something that wasn't yours. And I just think about this in the middle of this passage in James 2. It's talking about people who are just trying to get what they want and Jesus or, or James just says, you don't have because you don't ask and when you ask, you ask with wrong motives. And then the end of the book It says this, and this is just basically saying we should pray for everybody in every situation. James 5.13, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Singing praises is praying. Praying is talking to God, and it's just saying, God, thank you. And so we're singing praises. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. And then the illustration of Elijah, he prays and it stops raining and then he prays and it rains again. And so the Christian life, we obey, We treat people as though they're made in God's image. We value them because they're made in God's image, not because of what they can do for us. And we pray for people. We pray about every situation. We pray when we need it. We pray for other people. When somebody's struggling with sin, if you see somebody who's not all that they should be, our first step should not be to criticize them. It should be to pray for them that God would get involved in their life and help them to be who God wants them to be. And I'll just tell you for your leaders in this church, and for me, um, I don't know if you've ever had a leader that didn't function exactly the way you wanted them to. It can be a temptation sometimes to criticize our leaders and say, You should be doing this, knock them, you're not doing that. But I would just encourage you, you should pray for your leaders, that God will use them that God will give them wisdom. You should never speak against them. And it's nice to be new here because if that's you, I'm not talking to you. I don't know who you are or if you've ever done it. But I've just seen sometimes we can do that. We can criticize people. We can criticize our leaders. You know, the the best way to pray for yourself is to pray for your leaders. It's like praying for your doctor before you go into surgery. A guy's going to get a knife and cut on you. Lord, I hope he had a good night's sleep. And help them to have wisdom and make good choices, medical choices on me. And for you to pray for your spiritual leaders because they're the ones that are involved and they're supposed to be encouraging you and helping you and praying for you. And the best thing that you can do is pray for them. And so we're out of time. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for James who grew up with Jesus and was able to look at some very specific practical things that people needed to do. And Lord, he was able to inspire them and encourage them with the things you preached and the things that he learned. Lord, help us to be people who live out our faith. Help us to be people that treat others as made in God's image. And Lord, help us to be people who pray powerfully. So we ask these things in your name. Amen.